I think about James and this book that we've been in now for I don't know how many months. Um, but anyhow, you know, it starts out kind of rough when, when James says to us that we need to consider it pure joy whenever we face trials of various kinds. And, you know, in that he makes us the promise that these trials are going to come and you should expect that they will. Um, but this song right here um, is where we can find our source of joy and hope because we have this unchanging God that no matter the hopeless situation, no matter the hopeless circumstance that you or I might find, we might find ourselves in, um, there is one we can place our hope in and he never, ever changes. He is always faithful. He is always compassionate. He is always merciful. He is always kind. And he's always ready to stand and help us through anything that that this world, this broken down world would place in front of us. And so as we open the word of God together, I want to approach him with you in prayer and ask this one that we can place our hope in to lead us and guide us through our time as the word is open in front of us. And so let's pray together. Father, we humble ourselves before you right now. I love it, Lord, that we can look to you, our hope, that no matter, really, Lord, no matter what um, this world would throw in front of us, the weakness of our flesh going after these things that tempt us, um, the broken things of this world that think they can prove to us that they are more satisfying than you, Lord, forgive us for when we walk after those things, run into those things, oh, Lord, you being our hope, our sovereign God who is in control of all things, the one who sent Jesus to the cross to make a way for us to be in a better kingdom, not this world, your kingdom. Lord, may we run to you with our eyes fixed on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, as we open your word together now, I'm asking, I'm asking, Lord, that it would be your word that does the speaking, not me. Holy Spirit of God, pour yourself out on our church. Have your mighty way. Meet each one where he or she is at. No matter the trial, we ask, Lord, that you would bring comfort, joy, completion, and hope. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. James, he does. He starts out. And, uh, you know, next week, I'm going to, if you're new with us, uh, I get to share the pulpit with Jasper and a few other guys here. Um, and Jasper and I have kind of been uh, sharing James together. And uh, next week, it seems appropriate that James would end his book um, and his letter to the churches with um, addressing those that pray with faith. Because the first five chapters, James spends explaining to us that there are trials that are going to come into your life. He begins right out with saying that we're to consider it pure joy whenever we face trials of various kinds. Because you know that that is a testing of your faith with the intention to develop perseverance or steadfastness or patience so that ultimately you would be, we would be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's what God wants from us, that we would stand before him mature and complete, not lacking anything. And now we know this, that the maturity and completion will not take its full effect until we stand before him in eternity 
with all of this stuff removed, the temptations of this world, the weakness of our flesh removed, we'll stand perfect in front of him. But along the way, he intends to use the hardship of life to, pr- life to prune us and to make us into his likeness. And so he says, consider it pure joy because these things are necessary in your life. Jesus said it, in this world, or, or he says, temptations are sure to come, Matthew chapter 18, and he says they must. Because without these temptations, they don't, according to James chapter 1, without temptations that come into our lives, we have no idea the evil desires that exist in our hearts. And so trials, temptations come to reveal to us where we need God to step in and take charge. Reveals our evil desires. And so, if you're, again, if you're new with us, we hold up in front of us, and we do every Sunday, but I think in particular as we walk through James, we hold up the Word of God, which James calls it's our mirror, as we look into it and we see the reflection that comes back, are we able to see the person of Jesus Christ in our lives as we measure our lives with the Word of God? That's what we do here week after week after week, challenging us to not just be people that declare we have faith, in Christ, but we are ones that express our faith in Christ by doing the very things that the Word of God says we're supposed to do. It's an expression of our faith. Some of us get twisted up in thinking, I am saved because I do good works. We know, according to the Word of God, that that is not true. The things you do for God are an expression of the faith that you already have in Him. This is what James says, and so we need trials, we need temptations to come in front of us to reveal to us the areas of weakness that exist in our lives. And then listen to this. James says in chapter one, blessed is the man who remains steadfast or who is patient in the trial because when he has stood the test, when you have stood the test, we will receive the crown of life that God has promised for those who love him. The crown of life, that's the day where we are perfected in his presence, we are given this crown of life and that we will wear forevermore in the presence of our Lord and Savior, um, Jesus. Hey, a word about the word. I like to, like, this has been, last week, we're challenged with the comforts that we are able to surround ourselves with because of our wealth, because of our riches. And, uh, and James is making the point, it's fine that you have things, but what if things, what if all of these things that you use for your own personal pleasure and your comfort are ripped away from you? What happens if that, what do you do if that happens? How do you respond? Another trial revealing itself here as we live in this very blessed country, the United States of America. But, you know, as we held the Word of God up in front of us, I know I was confronted with some things that needed to be adjusted in my life, things I count on for my own personal pleasure and satisfaction and, and security. Um, but as you hold the Word of God up, this is, what, this is what it looks like to me. I compare it to running and, uh, or, or exercising. I know this. Not every time I go out and run is it a pleasurable experience. And right now, some of you are saying, I bet every time you go out and run, it's not a pleasurable experience. I like the, uh, I like the decal, the window decal that says 0.0. You know, there were the ones that say 13.1 that said they're like gloating, hey, I ran a half marathon. Or the 26.2, I ran a full marathon. Or the 0.0, I would never run any one of those. But I will tell you this, running for me sometimes it brings pleasure, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes 
Um, it is not hard. That's the way it is with the Word of God. But here's what I know. Every time we look into the Word of God, every time I finish a run, whether it's hard or not, it brings me satisfaction and pleasure knowing I have completed something that was not easy. That's what we do here with the Word of God. We spend time in it, and we have seen over the last number of weeks that it's not always easy to look into the Word of God. But here's what I can promise you. If you are willing to submit to what this has to say, it will bring you security and pleasure and satisfaction that you could never imagine because you are living in obedience to the Word of God. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast. Blessed is the man who listens to the Word of God. Okay, so here we go. Patience. I don't like that word very much. And before we go too far with that word, James is telling us, be patient. Be patient. And so let's define patience. I'm sure you all know what it is, but I'd like to bring a clarifying definition if I could, please. But uh, here's one definition. It's patience is the ability to take a great deal of punishment from evil people or circumstances without losing one's temper, without becoming irritated or angry, or without taking vengeance. Measure your heart. How are you at patience? It also includes the capacity to bear pain or trials without complaint, the ability to forbear under severe provocation, and the self-control which keeps one from acting rashly even through suffering opposition or adversity. So grade yourself right now as a person of, person of patience or impatience. If there's a sliding scale with patience over here and impatience over there, where do you typically fall? Let me, that's a very wordy definition, so I want to bring uh, a, a clarifying definition for us as believers in Jesus Christ, if you do. It's the ability to represent Christ when things don't go the way I want and in the time frame I expect. This is for us, Christian. This is a definition for us as it relates to patience. The ability to represent Christ when things don't go the way I want in the time frame I expect. We are not in control, are we? What, is the, what are the things that test your patience? So let me be a bit silly for a moment. Actually, there was a time in my life where it wasn't. There was a time where there were four boys in my house, and there was never a light turned off. There was never a door closed. There was never a clean bathroom. There was never a tool put black, back in its place. There was never a clean car. Never is exaggerated, but not far from it. Those are the kind of things that, that irritate me, that bring me impatience. Why? Because my kingdom is not in the order in which I think it should be. There are other things, like I know you experience impatience as you drive, just as I do, when things don't go the way you want on the road. Here's something for you. I know many of you have smart watches. Does your smart watch, do you like to be told to be patient? If there's one thing that makes me more impatient, it's when someone tells me to either be patient or relax. Because normally they're telling me in a situation where I'm already amped up. And when they say to me, relax, that makes me more irritated. I don't need you to tell me to relax because I know I'm unrelaxed. And I know what it means to be patient. Just let me deal with this on my own. Now, 
you have a smartwatch? I was sitting on the beach last week with Wendy. Sermon delivered. I'm sitting on the beach, completely content. Weather's perfect. And I get a notification from my watch. Guess what it told me to do? It said, relax. And I'm like, even my own watch now wants to tell me what to do. It's time to relax. And so I looked to see what my heart rate was. It normally runs in like 55 to 60 beats per minute. And uh, it was at like 80. I have no idea why, but my watch knew that I was worked up about something and it said it's time to relax. I don't like it when I'm told to be patient or told to relax. How about some serious things here now for a moment? I'm an elder and uh, I'm sure if you were to ask every individual elder, do you wish things would move more quickly than they do? And every elder would say, I wish things would move more quickly than they do. But I believe and we believe that God has assigned elders to oversee his church and that we together would work to make the most God-honoring decision we can for ourselves and for the sake of this church. And when you get a group of guys together wrestling over that, it never goes as quickly as you want. And I believe that God intends that because he wants us to learn patience and he wants you to learn patience with the quickness with which he chooses to see things glow, go. It's also hard. It's hard to be patient when I, when we, when I see people not listening to the word of God. Because the moment we, brothers and sisters in Christ, step out of um, the direction that, Lord, that the Lord gives us, it tends to make more of a mess than what we're already in. If only we would listen to the word of God. When it seems like God is not answering my prayers, that's when it's hard to be patient. I have prayed for this over and over and over and over again, and God seems to not be listening. There's no hope, and that drives us to a place of impatience where we start to grumble and we start to complain and we start to grasp for control and do things the way we want. So today, we have this really big question that we're going to answer. What do we do when there seems to be no hope? Key words, seems to be. What do we do when there seems to be no hope? If you know the person of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have access, full access, to the one who is able to bring the most satisfying hope. But what we tend to do is place our hope in ourselves and the things that this world has to provide in order to make our trials that James is talking about much more bearable. What do we do when there seems to be no hope? If you are someone that does not have a full and meaningful relationship with Christ, I would suppose you are more tempted to look to the things of this world, the created things to bring satisfaction and security and completion and hope to your hopeless situation. So for you, I would say there is no hope. You need to place your hope and your trust and your life in the hands of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But for those of us who know Jesus, seems to be can't fit in our vocabulary when we talk about the hope that comes from our God in heaven. What do we do when there seems to be no hope? Here's what I know. James has some answers for that. 
and we're going to turn to James chapter 5, beginning at verse 7, and we're going to work through verse 12. And so if you, as you turn there, I'm going to read it with you. Um, if you would, please just follow along, James chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and let your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Here's the directive. Be patient, James says. Be patient, therefore. Remember, this is pointing back to the beginning of chapter 5 where he says, he says, come now. That's like my, I'll tell you what, it's here again. I'll tell you what, it's time to listen. I'll tell you what, it's time to be patient. Why? Because James says so. For how long and for what purpose? That really isn't our concern right now. James is telling us to be patient. That's the directive. Be patient, therefore, brothers. So what do we do when there seems to be no hope, when patience seems to be wearing thin and running out? James gives us three more. He gives us so much more, but there are three things that I want to draw from this passage today. Here's the first one. What do we do when there seems to be no hope? We dwell on the kingdom that is to come. And if you're taking notes today, dwell on the kingdom that is to come. And then you could put dot, 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 not on the pain that is. Dwell on the kingdom that is to come. If you look at verses 7, 8, and 9, in three different ways, James says, our focus should not be on the things of this earth. Our focus should be on the, the eventual return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. He says it, until the coming of the Lord. Verse 8, he says, you also be patient, establish your heart for what? For the coming of the Lord is at hand. And then, if you look at verse 9, he talks about not grumbling against one another, that we wouldn't be judged. And He says that the judge is standing at the door. In three different ways, James is saying to us, hey, I don't want you to focus on the things that are of this earth, the things that are causing you hopelessness, the things that are challenging you, the test for patience. He says, I want you to focus on the return of Christ. The coming of the Lord is at hand. And these people lived, this church, the, the, the churches that this letter was written to were living as though Christ were coming today. Right now, right now. What is the thing you most look forward to with the return of Christ? You ever thought about that? Thing you most look forward to with the return of Christ. Here's what I would love to be able to say 
that I would stand face to face with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But if I'm being completely honest, the thing I most look forward to with the return of Christ is this, that these things that tempt me to sin, that the weakness of my flesh and the brokenness of my flesh and my inability to resist temptation, when Christ returns, He settles all of that and removes it all. The mind will become clear, no longer temptation, no longer weakness of the flesh. I will be, I will be restored to what I am supposed to be in His presence That's what I look most forward to. And then, yes, as I pray, Lord, continue to stir in me my love and affection for you because I want you to be what's preeminent in my life and especially at your return. What do you most look forward to? James says, be patient, therefore, until. Okay, so wait a minute. I'm supposed to endure these trials that are going to continue to come into my life. Well, how long? He says, until the return of Christ. He promises this to you and to me. He says, one day it's going to end. Okay, but when when is it going to end? When Christ returns. Well, when is he going to return? I don't know. Do you know? And so the message is endure, endurance, patience, waiting for his return. The entire time we live in in this world, in our flesh, we are to be patient until his return. Well, how's it going to go? Like, we want to know, okay, so, so I've, I've experienced life to this point. How's it going to go for me until he returns? I don't know that either. But one thing James says, that we are to wait with patience until the return of Christ. He makes a promise to us that eventually whatever trial you are facing, even if you are enduring it until his return, he is going to bring it to an end until God promises us In John chapter 16, he says, in this world you will have trouble. He says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He tells us to establish our hearts. Verse 8 says, you also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Set your heart on what is hopeful, not on what is hopeless. Here's the way I liken it. My late wife and I, we would go to Myrtle Beach. It was a, it was an, a yearly trip, an annual trip. We would go to Myrtle Beach. And it, there, there was a season where my work, I just absolutely hated it, hated going to work. And uh, there, there was trial after over here. There was trial here. There was a relational issue over here. And, and I couldn't wait until the week of that vacation. We would leave Thursday afternoon. We would go to Myrtle Beach. We'd spend, we'd spend eight days there. And why did, we like, why did I like getting away so much? Because I was going to a place that was fun, that did not have the stresses and, str- and struggles and trials of life back at home. It was a place to rest. It was a place to relax and not have your watch tell you to do so. It just happened naturally because it's what you wanted to do. And I can tell you this, and I think you are familiar with this. As you have something like that in your mind, a vacation type thing, the anticipation to that point of vacation makes the vacation so much more rich and meaningful. 
And I can tell you this, and I know it's your experience as well, that as you anticipate, that, an- that time of anticipation makes the struggles of your day in and day out life much more bearable. That's what it means to establish your heart. You're focused on the right things. You're letting your, the right focus bring you through the challenge you're facing because your heart is set on what is hopeful, not on what is hopeless. Establish your hearts. Confirm your faith through patient endurance. What do we do when there seems to be no hope? We think upon the return of Christ, and we know that he's going to return because he says that he will. We're going to talk in just a little bit about the farmer and the fruit of the earth and how he is patient about it, waiting until he receives the early and the late rains. But we learn a lesson from the farmer as he declares to us, I can't control the early and the late rains. I can't control what happens in between, but I know I am called to cultivate and to harvest in accordance with God's plan as he sees it sufficient to happen in my life. We're going to talk in just a little bit about the fruit of the earth. Okay, that's the first one. Dwell on the kingdom that is to come. Here's another one that James points out to us. When things seem hopeless, consider those who have persisted in patience. There are so many people that we can look to in our lives. And I'm sure hopeful that you have. And this is why we have the fellowship of believers. Because I can look around this room right now and I can see faces of people that have endured some pretty significant hardship and trial in their lives. And even myself, I know when I think through how I've responded to hardship, I haven't always done it with patience, but I'm trusting that as you, as I, continue on in our relationship with the Lord, He is going to grow us in patience in patience. And I'm seeing faces around me right now that are enduring even now, and it brings me encouragement. But, but James says, as an example of suffering, verse 10, that we should consider the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And so there are three that I would like to take into consideration right now. Isaiah. Isaiah sees the spectacular vision. He sees the throne room of God. And someone needs to, do, to go and declare the word of God. And so Isaiah And so in Isaiah chapter 6, after hearing the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us, he says, and I wonder if he ever had moments of regret when he said, I'll go. I'll be the one that declares. Because after he said that, God says, this is what I want you to say. I want you to say to this people that judgment is coming on them. But here's what's going to happen. You're going to declare to a people that's not going to listen. They're going to hear you, but they're not going to listen. They're going to see, but they're not going to understand. This message is going to make them dull of heart. It's going to deafen their ears. It's going to make them blind, and they will not understand. Isaiah, God says, I want you to declare what's about to come to them, and they're not going to listen. And so if that's you right now, What are you going to do? For real? For real, God, you want me to declare a message to a people that's not going to listen? Well, how long do you want me to do that? I want you to do it until it's finished, is what God says to him. How long? Until the cities are destroyed, houses lay in waste, and people are removed from the land. Patience, patient endurance, 
trials, remaining steadfast, establishing his heart, I bet he spent a whole lot of time with God because that couldn't have been easy. Declaring a message that wouldn't be listened to. Ezekiel. This one, is, this one is shameful to me. Ezekiel, God said, destruction is coming on my people, and I want you to declare it in this way. I want you to take a brick, and so I imagine, imagine you are told, I want you to take a brick, and I want you to go to, the, to town square, and I want you to set this brick, brick out, and I want you to establish, um, uh, surround it with the armies that are about to come. So I imagine him making this little thing in the middle of the town square, a prophet of God with a brick and making little figurines and, and ramparts that are, are coming up against the city as a declaration to my people that destruction is coming. And then I want you to lay on your left side for 390 days, nearly naked, bound, lay on your left side, and you will eat more meager portions of food and just enough water to sustain you for 390 days. And then when you're done with those 390 days, I want you to flip over and I want you to lay on your right side for 40 days. 390 days for the people of Israel, 40 days for the people of Israel, or excuse me, the people of Judah. And that's what I want you to do. That's how I want you to declare the destruction that is coming upon these, this people. I can't imagine doing that. Would you do that? If God said, this is how I want you to declare to these people. Consider those who have persisted in patience, Ezekiel, Isaiah. Here's another one for you. You know Hosea. You know what God said to him? I want you to go and I want you to find a woman of prostitution. And I want you to marry her. It's there, read it, Hosea. I want you to marry this woman. But guess what's going to happen? She's going to leave you and she's going to run back to prostitution. And I want you to go and take your own money and I want you to purchase her back. And this is a declaration of what God does for his people in his church. He marries his people out of prostitution and his people continue to run for him, from him. He goes back and brings them back, runs back to prostitution. God brings them back and he says, I want you to do this with this prostitute because it speaks of my relationship with my people and how they continue to run away from me and how I continue to pursue them. Hard. That's hard stuff. Only the magnificent patience of the Lord could handle a situation like that. And so in this, just in this moment, I want you to think about how often God is patient with you. He says, don't do this and you do it. He says, don't do this and you do it. He says, don't dis do this and you do it. And he continues to come back for you. Who do you have in your life that has been able to persist with patience that you can draw strength from? Here's what's kind of crazy. I mentored a young man back in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. He's about 10 years younger than me, and I mentored him, he and one other guy. Uh, we would have Bible studies on a regular, on a weekly basis. And uh, um, one of the guys went into ministry, and he stayed home and still actively participates in our church. Um, but 
you know, we had, when Caden, our son, was two years old, he was diagnosed with diabetes. And so, of course, the first few weeks or month, you're wondering when's he going to fall over dead. Like, it's, that's just what goes through your head. Because he could not communicate to us what was happening in his body. We had no idea. Did he need, did he need something to bring his blood sugar up? Was his blood sugar too high? Was it, like, you think in the moment he's going to... But over the course of months and years... God has proven himself faithful. Man, was I impatient early on. And how to deal with that? Ask Caden, ask Wendy. His blood sugar needed to be exactly what it needed to be, no matter what. Now, guess what? I don't, I wish I didn't have to deal with that. For, he's 18 now. I wish I didn't have to deal with that. But I got a call this past week. From Jason, his 12-year-old son was just diagnosed with diabetes. And I wonder on the purpose of the Lord. Because you know what? In the middle of it, you don't want to say, you want to say, why God? Why am I dealing with this? And then some 15, 16 years later, he says, this is why I wanted you to deal with it. Because this young man is going to need to see that you are able to make it through this trial. Who in your life can you look to that is able to help you persist with patience? Because that's what James is telling us to do. These magnificent prophets. Read Hebrews chapter 11 and you'll see many people expressing real faith in God as they struggled through some terrible, terrible things. Who do you have in your life that you can look to? All right, so here we go. We got to keep moving. We dwell in the kingdom that is to come. When we feel like there's no hope, we consider those who have persisted in patience before us. And here's the third one. You trust in the purpose and the character of the Lord. Man, that's a hard one. Verse 11 says, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, so we're going to hear about Job. Job was considered a man of faith, blameless and upright. He feared God and he turned away from evil. He was considered to be the greatest man of all the peoples of the East. Here we are in the West. Would he say that of you? You are the greatest individual of the West. And here we have this man, Job, whose faith was incredible. And even as I say this, I think about last week's sermon. Job was extremely wealthy, and in a moment, God determined that he wouldn't be wealthy anymore. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, 500 female donkeys. He had many servants, and not to mention his sons and daughters. He was rich upon rich for his day. And then Satan shows up before God. God gave him permission to stand before him. And God says to Satan, where have you been? What have you been doing? And he said, I've been going around, looking around, going back and forth across the earth. And he says, and God says to him, Did you, have you ever considered my servant Job? He's blameless. And Satan says, yeah, but you have your hand of protection on him. What, if you remove it and you let me do whatever I want to him, except take his life from him, let's see how he responds. Let's see how his faith endures. We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And in a moment, he loses everything. Everything. And he makes these two statements. 
He says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. His faith was unmoved by losing everything, including his health. He loses his health. Painful sores are placed all over his body. You see him sitting, scraping with a broken piece of pottery, these, these boils from his flesh. And he says this as his wife is screaming in his ear, you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die, she says to him. But he says to her, you speak as one of the foolish women who speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job's faith was unshaken. In the moment, he did not question God. Job knew based by his faith that God had some purpose that he didn't need to know in the moment. And so as we trust in the purpose and the character of God, we see how Job responded to loss, to this incredible test. I believe we need to be careful though, especially when we are in trials of deep grief because Job was. And so that was the first two chapters of Job's. Then Job, the next 34 chapters are him sitting with three plus one friends. Four friends. As they wrestle over why Job is in this situation he's in. And they for sure thought he had done something terribly wrong that would bring this kind of affliction into his life. So for the next 34 chapters, he wrestles with them over why it was happening. And so while Job's faith remained intact, apparently there were some things that he said that weren't pleasing to the Lord as he wrestled with these guys that were pointing the finger at him. And here's what I wonder. You know, maybe, maybe there was a moment of him questioning, why God, why did you do this? Maybe Job had those wrestlings. But speaking from a personal perspective, I really believe that there was a piece of him that became proud of how he was handling his grief. I had that experience. When my late wife died, the five weeks that she was in a coma laying in a hospital, I didn't ever question why. And as I didn't, I became proud of the way I was handling that. And I wonder, I wonder if Job wasn't becoming with these men proud of the way he was handling the situation. God's purpose continues in Job's life. God speaks. After 34 chapters of letting these men wrestle over why was happening, what was happening to Job was happening, God says this, it's time for you to be silent, Job. Time for you to be silent. It's time for me to speak. And after God, for the next 38, 39, 40, 41, four chapters, God describing to him who he is and what he is capable of, his sovereign control, that he is in charge of everything that happens. He is the giver of every next breath, as he is the one who hung the stars and the moon and the sun and the skies. He has made the world to be what it is and is in control of all of it. Job is humbled. God's purpose is revealed. 
as he humbles Job, saying, Behold, Job says, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? He says, I lay my hand over my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job was humbled as he heard God say, I am the one that you should point to. I am the source of your faith. I am what has sustained you through all of this. And I am far more capable of responding to this than you are. God's purpose. Job, for some reason, needed to be humbled and also driven to a place of worship and repentance. In chapter 42, Job says this, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, as I see you, my sovereign and loving and compassionate and merciful God, treat me as one of your own children. I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. God brought, God brought by the word of his mouth a man who had strong faith in God to his knees in humility and worship and repentance. God's purpose is this, that we would be in full submission to God's plan with a heart that is firmly established on him. Man, when our focus is right and we have strong faith in the, our relationship with God, the trials that we face become so much smaller and so much less harmful. But look, what happens when we become impatient? James addresses that as well. Hey, look, focus on the return of Christ if you need a place to place your hope. Look around you and see those that he has brought into your life to help you through these things that can provide you with encouragement. And then trust in God and his purpose. But when we don't do that, we get impatient. And he says, this is what happens, verse 9, he says, you're going to grumble and you're going to complain. But he says, don't do that so that you're not judged, because why? The judge is standing at the door. He doesn't want to see us, his church, his brothers and sisters in Christ, grumbling and complaining against one another. We point the finger at others when we start grumbling and complaining. And I see this so often in marriages, so often in marriages. God, I don't want to endure this anymore. Come on, let me out. I don't want to endure it anymore. He says, no, you need to remain in it. And here's what we're guilty of when we grumble and complain. This is what we're saying. The process of sanctification or my spiritual growth, my process of spiritual growth is not going at the pace or the way I think it should for him or for her. You see, we like to determine that our trials are not our responsibility. If you would just fix that over there, or that over there, or my wife, or my husband, if you would just fix that, then the trial would go away. The process of sanctification is not going at the pace in the way I think it should for the other person. We grumble and complain. God doesn't want to see that when he returns. We've got to keep moving here. Last thing, verse 12. 
but of all, above all, brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth. When we become impatient, we decide, I need to take control of this. I have to take control of this. Yeah, we don't need to have these long oaths that we speak before each other and before God to declare, I'm a man or a woman of my word. God is simply saying, be a man of your word. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. When you are impatient, you don't even want to do that. You don't want to be a person of your word. When you stand before your spouse, let's, keep, let's stay with a marriage. When you stand before your spouse and you utter and you offer these, these vows before God and before each other, God says in Ecclesiastes chapter four or five, he says that you're foolish if you don't fulfill those vows. So if you don't remain married, you're foolish. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be true to your vows. When we become impatient, we begin to say, God, this is too hard. I don't want to be in it anymore. Please remove me from it. And we refuse to think that this trial is my own. We try and take back control. But God is saying, don't do that. Just be a person of your word. Honor me by doing that. Why? What do we do when there seems to be no hope? We place our focus in the right place. On the return of Christ, we consider those who have persisted in patience and then we trust in the purpose and character of God. Now listen, for us today, what is God's purpose for us? He makes it very clear. As we're in relationship with Jesus Christ, John 15 says that by this my gut Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just like the farmer. It's us to cultivate and work to bear much fruit. And with faith in the right place and trusting in our God, that can happen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, the will of God is your sanctification. It's that you would look more like the person of Jesus Christ. And without the trials that come into and out of our lives, we cannot do that. They are used to provoke us and show us where we are impatient. Wonder how you're doing with that. How are you doing with the purpose and the character of God in the midst of your trial? Patience is like the trial within the trial. I have this trial and I'm told to be patient in it. It's crazy. But God will remain faithful with your eyes fixed on him as he walks you through each and every trial that you face in your life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that your word was received today. I pray, Lord, that I did not get in the way of it. I'm asking, Lord, that your word, as you promised, would not return void, that you would use it in the lives of each one. And Lord, if there is any here right now that is struggling so deeply, I pray that you would wash over them, that you would bring them comfort, peace, Lord, that you would, you would instill in them a God-sized patience and that you would bring them straight to your feet as they trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.